the previous big storm in Louisiana was Laura. The significant majority of people who died didn't die from the storm itself. They died from the power outage, carbon monoxide and heat. Median day of mortality is five to six days after the storm has passed. The freeze in Texas, they're still reporting that it was 250 people. There's been academic research on this. It's seven, 800 people who died. Uh, and again, it was the outage that did it. Welcome to the Energy Nerd Show powered by Synapse Energy Economics and Climable.org. Energy Nerd Show. Hey, Jeannie. Yeah, bro. Who's our guest on the Energy Nerd Show today? Today we have Broderick Baggert from Together Louisiana. Hi, Broderick. Hey, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. I've started listening to you guys the last couple of weeks and have been binge watching while I've been doing household chores. So both my wife is happy with me and I have learned a ton from at least your last 15 or so episodes. It's a great show. Did you see Jen Calais in episode 133? I did see Jen Calais, which we didn't know that she would be talking about. You know, we sent it to everybody and said, look, somebody's finding this to be significant, not just locally, but as a part of the broader system, which we've had a, a, a sense of. But we're also like real neophyte energy nerds here. You know, we're, we're, we're just getting into the business of being energy nerds. So it was, it was very good and encouraging to see that, um, that you guys found it interesting. That piqued our interest. We wanted to know more. It's great to have you on the show to kind of dive into what's really going on. Where should we start? I'll start where Jen started, which is not usually where I start. It's sort of where we ended up after about a year, which is a whole strategy and a system and a kind of comprehensive view. And then I'll come back and tell the story because we didn't start there. I mean, it started much more piecemeal, like, man, we can't just keep having these outages and not having a plan. What might we do? Where we've ended up is feeling like the strategies and financing and decision-making mechanisms that plan our grid need to not just plan for the supply of power, not just plan to try to discourage outages. They also need to plan for when there are outages. Um, that they need to incorporate into the financing and thinking and planning strategies. And we think the answer is decentralized energy with, with solar and storage. In short, Community Lighthouse is the name of our strategy. And in New Orleans, it is to have a resilience hub with solar and backup battery storage in every single neighborhood and really have come to the conclusion that this is not something that's just relevant to New Orleans. This is something that's relevant statewide and through lots of the country, in particular, Texas. The largest loss of life in the last 20 years from natural disasters are power outages. It is not storm surges or flying debris or winds. It is the power outages and people are dying from carbon monoxide and from heat. And maybe once upon a time, we didn't have the technology to be resilient. We do now, you know, uh, it's well-developed, it's well-established. So from a very grassroots community perspective, we have been sort of piecing this together and are now trying to encourage our utility rate making and, and, and decision making structures to just embrace that and start embedding that into how they plan for the grid. That's really great news. I think that it's touching on things that people all over the country and all over the world really care about. And I love the lighthouse imagery because it's a positive thing that is hopeful and it brings people together. You know, there's so much about this kind of the funding bill and how can we politicize that? You know, like it's so everything is so fracturing and this is very much a unifying effort. And I'm curious, do you want to talk about you know, the feelings around that? And were you are you aware of the kind of origin story? or the naming or? Yeah, yes. Together New Orleans uh, and its sister 
statewide organization together, Louisiana, are not just focused on energy. They are organizations made up of existing institutions, membership organizations of religious congregations, unions, nonprofits, basically organizations that are made up of people. Uh, and to help people through their citizen organizations develop power to be able to affect decision making from, you know, potholes to like statewide tax policy, you know, um, but to work at a level where we think we can affect decision making. The New Orleans organization is actually fairly uh, new and was sort of founded with this giant event in July of 2021 with about 800 people. And then a month later, Hurricane Ida hits and it doesn't hit New Orleans. New Orleans had like 55 mile an hour winds, which is which is nothing. It was a very powerful storm elsewhere, but it knocked out the transmission system and New Orleans was dark for 10 to 14 days. 33 people died. Um, 28 of them died from the power outage. The previous big storm in Louisiana was Laura in southwest Louisiana. Again, the significant majority of people who died didn't die from the storm itself. They died from the power outage, carbon monoxide and heat. Median day of mortality is five to six days after the storm has passed. The freeze in Texas, they're still reporting that it was 250 people there's been academic research on this. It's it's seven, 800 people who died. Uh, and again, it was the outage that did it, right? And so um, we had been through this in Isaac 10 years earlier. I remember because my son was six days old when Hurricane Isaac brushed the city. He had jaundice. And so we had this medical device. They would have admitted him to the hospital, but they said, this storm's coming. We'll, we'll send it to you uh, that needed electricity. <laughs> the eye comes over and we're out of electricity. And I just remember sort of scuttling through my neighborhood with a six-day-old baby and a light bed under the other arm and not feeling like that worried because my sister lived two blocks away and her neighbor had a generator. But it's not just jaundice and babies that people suffer from, right? I mean, they have oxygen machines. They have dialysis machines. There are people, who, especially people who are isolated. So we've been through this time and time again. And here we were with 55-mile-an-hour winds and there's no plan what to do when the lights have gone out. So the leaders of all of the organizations that make up together New Orleans got on a Zoom call and started saying, you know, we could wait forever until the city or state or FEMA comes up with a plan. Why don't we start figuring out what a plan should be? And then just started talking to many energy nerds. I mean, it was, it was really fun to really start getting to know folks and kind of hearing what could be possible and where we ended up was the vision of every neighborhood having a community institution, starting with those that already respond, getting solar panels and backup battery systems to have them just have resilient power, but then also have them serve as cooling centers, heating centers, places where you can get food, ice, and most of all, each location builds a team that in blue sky times does outreach in their neighborhood and gets to know who are the people who don't have vehicles, who are seniors, who are vulnerable, who are isolated. We call it a 24 hour list um, so that they check on people and kind of see if they have a plan. About two months after the storm, this vision was really coming into shape and I remember I started a meeting and I, and I said, okay, we're here to talk about the neighborhood resilience hub centers with solar panels and backup battery storage to serve as response hubs in a disaster. And I sort of stopped and said, you know, we're going to need a name for that. Uh, and, and, and a pastor uh, named Dwayne Gidney just typed in the chat community lighthouse. And it was like, it was the most, you know, instantaneous and unanimous thing uh, that's happened. And just kind of that immediately became the name and really the vision now that we're working to, to implement throughout um, New Orleans and increasingly throughout the rest of the state. That's great. So cool. Can you talk a bit more about that 
human network and people checking in on each other? How does that work? A colleague of mine in North Louisiana, which has the most recent long duration outage in June of this year, where a regular thunderstorm knocked out power for six days in Shreveport, Louisiana and Bossier right next door. He has found this book called Heatwave, which has helped us really kind of think about this and get clear. It is about the heatwave in Chicago in the mid-90s, where I think about 700 people died. And the sociologist sort of did, I think he calls it like a city-level autopsy, uh, to really sort of say, what, what did people die of? I mean, they died from the heat, but you had very different rates of illness and death. And at like 20,000 feet, yes, poor neighborhoods had higher rates of death. He looks at two African-American neighborhoods, both with high levels of poverty. One of them had one of the lowest death rates in the city, and one of them had one of the highest death rates in the city. And he basically said, what is going on there? Um, and his conclusion was it was the places that had networks of connection, sort of social capital, civil society, block clubs, any kind of vehicles that had people checking in on other people where people survived and places where people were isolated, where they're not sidewalks, where there start to be an out migration. People feel afraid of their neighborhoods. They don't have civic organizations and other healthy institutions. The congregations, if they exist at all, are not connected to the neighborhood that had the highest mortality rates, including in some really wealthy areas if people were isolated. The uh, introduction to his book that really put climate change front and center and said, you know, it's not just this. You don't want to say, oh, you, you know, it's just a matter of, of kind of like our connectivity. But in part, it will take strong neighborhood connections and connections to people uh, that allows us to get through the disasters that are going to become increasingly common. So our strategy is with our organizations and others that are community lighthouses, they build a team. It starts with a team captain, a canvassing lead, a technical lead, and kind of other roles that they kind of specify and train for. They have a specific geographic area that's not massive, right? Um, they're not trying to cover a giant swath of the city. Uh, it might be a couple hundred people. And they go door to door getting to know people, asking what they would change about the neighborhood, and then identifying people who, for some reason or another, we want to give them a call when a disaster is coming or in the immediate aftermath and see what their situation is and be connected to them. So that's sort of half the strategy. That without a center that's got resilient power, you know, just couldn't exist, right? I mean, you need to have the infrastructure side. So really, this is a, a, a campaign that's got kind of two big planks, the human infrastructure, but also the physical infrastructure to make it possible for these centers to continue to operate even when the grid is down. So um, I saw something about 24 community lighthouses. What's the status of the plans? It sounds like a lot of the human organizations been going on. And um, is the technical piece also? Um... Yes, I'd love to show you. We've raised money so far, kind of pretty piecemeal. Some philanthropy, some city money, some federal money. Uh, uh, our Congressman Troy Crowder put a a congressional allocation. I should say, and we got to get to later on, the Infrastructure Bill and Inflation Reduction Act have been game changing for our ability to do any of this stuff. So I, I do want to touch on that. But through that, we've been able to raise about $10 million to do a pilot phase of 24 locations, 16 inside of New Orleans and eight elsewhere. Here are the first seven, um, all of which are operational. So the first two were Broadmoor Community Church up here and Bethlehem Lutheran Church. These are kind of big residential systems. The battery supply, you can barely see it, but uh, there's four power walls back here. So that's kind of a good example of the small systems. They're sort of somewhat upgraded residential systems. This was the first one that construction started on, Crescent Care Health Center. Much larger system, much larger battery, but it took a while to complete. And then the very largest one so far is this microgrid in New Wine Christian Fellowship. It's actually not in New Orleans. It's in St. John the Baptist Parish nearby 
which really was ground zero for Hurricane Ida. But it's got panels and batteries backing up three different buildings, and it's a, it's a pretty robust and complex system. So they really range in size, but we've got uh, seven that are complete and 17 or so that are um, underway. We got some terrific news about a week and a half ago. We worked with the state around its application for the big federal grid resilience grant, GRIP, and argued this would be a great angle. We're using union labor on these and prevailing wages already, even though you know you don't have to. It's in low-income communities. It's you know 100% renewable. You should make this the center of, of the state's application. They did, and Louisiana got $249 million of federal GRIP funding, which was like the third largest grant in the country, all to do solar and storage resilience hubs. Um, so we're really excited about the prospects of this expanding kind of far beyond the initial uh, 24 to sort of fill out the vision of over time having uh, one in every neighborhood. That's amazing. Congratulations. And on those, that $249 million, who will own and who will control those assets? Like once they're installed, clearly in an outage, that's, you know, the local community controls it, whoever has the building controls, right? But there's loose sky times. Um, where's all that kind of ownership and, and benefit going? So I'll speak to the community lighthouse portion of that. The state's grant sort of expanded from that idea to include some municipal sites and homeland security sites, which is wonderful. I think some of that has not been worked out by, by the folks who are going to be developing that. Under our model, we have a single nonprofit owner, which is now together New Orleans. We'll be sort of spinning this off as its own separate um, 501c3 that owns all the systems. They have a community lighthouse energy services agreement with the host sites, which gives them energy savings every month. So far, they have not had to bear any of the cost of the upfront capital. A portion of their savings goes to paying for insurance and 20 years of maintenance, uh, but the systems are owned collectively um, or as a, a under a single nonprofit owner. That also means that we have access to the battery, can constantly monitor it, can sort of quantify and keep track of the reduction that it's achieved, the battery status, the load management. I'll show you that in just a minute. But um, uh, they they have control locally at the site, but we also have technicians who are able to kind of see and operate the system as a whole, which is a part of what has made us over time understand that we have backed our way into this really interesting conversation about the future of our electric grids, right? I mean, you know, there being networks of battery storage that is of increasing relevance and value to the grid itself. Uh, and that certainly kind of wasn't where we started with this. But when we got to the point where I think we have more battery storage than any other single entity in New Orleans. Um, uh, you start to realize that maybe we belong in some conversations that we have not thought we belonged in before, which is affecting decision-making about how the grid operates. You mentioned the um, managing. How do you visualize or get data about what's going on with the um, systems? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Every one of these systems has a load management system. For the small ones, we use span panels. These are for the single phase locations. So this is an example of real-time energy flow at Bethlehem Lutheran Church, which is one of the first uh, lighthouses. Now we have this so that when there is an outage, you have really granular control over circuits. It automatically is programmed to drop to emergency circuits when there is an outage. Um, and then if your battery level is going lower, you can kind of refine that even more. 
but it also just tells this incredible story about what's always going on. So at the bottom, this little blue house here is the amount of energy that they are using, about 3,800 kilowatts. Uh, this is how much solar they're producing, uh, 19,000. Right now, net metering uh, to the grid. At night, the battery kicks in um, and will start to power the facility. That's really important outside of New Orleans where we don't have net metering. The inside, right now, we're doing it to kind of make sure that these are uh, operating. But through that, we've been able to see just day after day, week after week, it's not like they'll be able to stay online for 15 hours or 18 hours. They're going to be able to stay online indefinitely because the size of the storage and the capacity to recharge every day means that they will have that ability. Then you also see how much carbon has been displaced this week, which is 265 pounds of coal, according to the app. How you use your energy stats on how self-reliant or grid independent you were. Today, we've been 66%. It's a a little bit cloudy this week, 84% totally independent of the grid. When you factor in what we've sent to the grid, it's actually net negative uh, for the year right now. Um, so all of this is both interesting and from the perspective of lay people, a really valuable teaching and storytelling tool. I'm a community organizer. We do not decide what we work on based on UN reports. I don't care how grim they are. <laughs> We're organizing people and what they bring forward as what they care about is what we're able to work on because we don't have some huge staff or budget and lobbyists, right? It's, it's, it's people's own interests and in energy. So you have this disconnect where the world has to go carbon zero. And those words don't mean anything to most of us, right? I mean, and, and they seem so far away. They're in what country now? And, you know, the, the, these agreements – no matter how dire the story gets, there's no logic to working over something that you feel like you have no control over. So here now, we've got seven locations. A year from now, it'll be 24. Three years from now, we hope it will be close to 500. Uh, where they have gone net zero or net negative or real close to it with their own facilities, with something that they can kind of see in their hands. I think that has the potential to create a very different and more well-informed constituency about all the policies that affect all this stuff. If we've done it, then we know it's possible. We know businesses can do it. We know industry can do it. We know our governments can do it. And we know that we need to fight for the policies that, that, that continue to make it possible. So that's also why we see value in being able to monitor all this stuff is it still tells a really important story about what's happening and what's possible. How does the communication work in terms of like if there is a eminent storm or something, the batteries presumably should be fully charged, right? Or if the wholesale grid is getting stressed, maybe these systems could be used to um, support the larger grid. Is, is, is that kind of communication happening at this point or, or is, is that the... The former is built in. The battery systems are really complex. They have weather monitoring. Uh, we keep them fully charged anyway during the day. But if for any reason they're not, if they see... Storms coming, they kind of adjust the, the, the logarithms to do that. The latter is in our future that these can be grid assets, uh, that they can provide stability to the system, that they can add value to the system. That is certainly true. And it's a big part of why we've intervened in dockets at the city council, which regulates utilities in New Orleans and at the Public Service Commission, is not only say this ought to happen, but to say if this does happen, it provides value 
not just in resilience, but actually in energy uh, stability and that it can strengthen the grid, right? So right now we don't have the policies that reflect that, right? So there's no compensation or valuation for discharging energy uh, from a battery to the grid. To be honest, our utility companies are just not even yet capable of using batteries as an asset. We've told the Department of Energy that was giving technical assistance that, and they were like, uh, I didn't know that that was an option, you know, um, and it may or may not be an option, but we're not exactly ahead of the curve on many of the grid of the future discussions until lately, in some respects, because of the frequency of the storms that we think this is sort of moving us forward in a different kind of way. Well, it seems like you, you are ahead of a lot of other places in terms of you know, having concrete community projects. And I, I'm wondering, I mean, every place is special. New Orleans is unique you know, in, in so, so many ways. I, I wonder how replicable, I mean, the history of um, you know, organized communities, right, in New Orleans supporting each other. And is how much of that is, um, you think, transferable? Or, or what would you say to people in other states watching, the, watching this yeah. uh, episode? What, what can they learn from you and, and how... Um, how replicable is this? It's interesting because the other place that is also really moving on this is Puerto Rico. And I don't know. I don't think people would like look at the spectrum of things and say, you know, Puerto Rico and New Orleans like have it so together. They're, they're such excellent technocrats um, that, that that those places are going to kind of lead on. You know, I mean, I, so uh, I guess on one level, I'd say, man, if we can do it, surely uh, functional cities can do it. Right. Uh, but um, I think it's clearly the case that we've both had disasters that have like rocked our communities to their core and not just once. And I think that in part has raised the stakes. It looks to us like that's coming to most places. The nature of it changes a lot, right? Um, So in North Louisiana, it's more cold and water. Uh, They're digging wells in their community lighthouses. A consultant, Jenny Potter, who's worked with us, is from Lahaina in Maui. And, you know, when I saw the destruction there, it didn't even occur to me that this could be relevant there because everything gets burnt. Well, her house and home, thankfully, were about five miles north of where the fire stopped. But then they were totally off. There was no communication or ability to do anything for weeks until they started getting some mobile installations in, right? So a potential for different versions of this. The technical side is not the hard part. Uh, it, it does require sort of scoping out pretty individual battery storage systems. We are really lucky to have a top flight uh, solar and storage developer and designer, Pierre Moses, uh, with, with 127 Energy, who lives here in New Orleans, who we just as we're meeting with people, you meet him. And he's been wonderful. There's no way we would be able to do any of this without experts. But, you know, as I'm getting to know y'all's world, Uh, There's a lot of folks who know way more than we ever will know about that side of things. Uh, I think connecting with community organizations that have a deep network of people and trust and ability to move people is an essential part. Um, But if you put those together, I think it is repeatable and and needs to be because we're going to need this in the future. I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's that community organizing that has happened over the years and those trusted relationships that are going to allow this sort of technology to come in and be accepted, along with the people that have already been advocating for the positive kinds of change. I think that's absolutely right. Thank you. Well, thanks for being on the show, Broderick. Oh, my pleasure. This is a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed just getting to know your show and learned a lot from it. So I look forward to to continuing to follow your work and this whole journey. Yeah, we look forward to following your work. This is really really interesting. And I I think there really are lessons for um, other places around the country. 
And maybe we'll be able to check back in with you in a few months or in a year and, and get, get an update. We love having repeat guests. That sounds great. Look, look forward right. to it. Thanks Take so much. Care. <laughs> check out the show notes for visuals and links for more info on the topics discussed. You can find the Energy Nerd Show on social media pretty much everywhere at Energy Nerd Show or on our website at energynerdshow.com.